Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Isro. She is a lecturer in moral and political philosophy at the School of Philosophy, Religion and History of Science at the University of Leeds in the UK. Her main research interests are in metaethics, normative ethics and moral psychology. So, Dr. Isro, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, my first question, let's start with moral hypocrisy. So, what is a moral hypocrite? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question. Um, and I think it's one that actually turns out to be surprisingly hard to answer. Uh, and that's because, I, I mean, I tend to think of hypocrisy as actually a surprisingly elusive phenomenon. I think it's surprisingly difficult to pin down and to distinguish from other related phenomena. Uh, so, for example, I mean, you might start out saying hypocrisy has got to involve some sort of mismatch. Uh, often it's a mismatch between what you say and what you do. Uh, I think it's common to think that at minimum or at least typically hypocrisy has got to involve, you know, saying one thing and doing another or not practicing what you preach. Uh, so, for instance, you might hear me saying, you know, how horrendous is it that people still eat meat in this day and age? Um, you know, shame on them. But then you come to my house and you swear you can like smell, you know, a freshly cooked roast, you know, lingering about in the air. Uh, but then if you think about it carefully, I think uh, a mismatch or an inconsistency can't be enough, right? Uh, I mean, am I really a hypocrite in this case? Uh, maybe I'm just weak willed. Maybe I just, you know, try to be vegan, but I can't resist my mother's cooking. Uh, or maybe I just changed my mind. Maybe between the last time I spoke to you, I've reached a new moral conclusion. I've just decided it's not wrong to eat meat. Uh, so that's just to give you a sense of how hypocrisy, at least as I think of it, has quite a lot of overlap with related phenomena. Uh, and that's why I think it can often be quite difficult to pin down, to offer a neat definition of moral hypocrisy that, you know, like a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that can clearly set it apart from those related phenomena but also doesn't exclude things that intuitively seem like cases of hypocrisy. Uh, so there are two main options then, I think, for um, a philosopher like me who wants to answer the question you asked, uh, what is hypocrisy? Uh, so one approach is the one that Colin Klein and I take in our paper, which is where you offer a paradigm-based explanation. Uh, so what you do here is you begin with what might be called exemplars of hypocrisy. Uh, so these are clear-cut cases that you take to be really representative of the phenomenon. Uh, and then you analyze their key features and you aim to explain all instances of hypocrisy back by reference to that paradigm. Uh, so for instance, Colin and I think of exemplar cases, I'm not sure if you'll agree, but we think exemplar cases are things like the vocal animal rights activist who occasionally sneaks in some bacon or a corrupt priest, say. Uh, and there are four features we take to be important here and that we think are present to varying degrees in all cases of hypocrisy. So one is a mismatch, as I said before, I think that's an ingredient, even if it's not the only one, uh, and a mismatch between what the person says and does. So paradigmatically, a hypocrite is going to offer an unfavorable moral opinion of some action, like I did with those meat eaters. Uh, and then they perform that very same action, right? You smell the roast in my kitchen. Uh, the other is criticism. So usually it's not just an unfavorable moral opinion in the paradigm cases. Usually it's something 
a bit more full on. It's blame or something to that degree usually. So usually the person is levying moral judgment on others in a way that suggests they're really emotionally exercised about the issues. Uh, the third feature we think is important, and this might seem less obvious, uh, is a claim to moral authority of some kind. So we think in exemplary cases, hypocrites kind of set themselves up in such a way with their pronouncements, usually such that they suggest they could be counted upon not to act precisely as they did. They were well positioned to give practical guidance. Uh, and finally, Colin and I think a really important feature of hypocrisy is this change in the terms of people's moral interaction with one another. So when someone's a hypocrite, I think you don't just doubt their integrity or question their moral compass. I think you also tend to think they're no longer warranted in condemning certain kinds of behavior or on being trusted by other people the way they were before. So I think if someone's a hypocrite, you might tend to say, you know, who are you to, to blame me for this when it's been revealed that you too are guilty of this moral fault? Uh, so that was the first approach I think you can take to answering the question, what is hypocrisy, this paradigm-based explanation? And those are just the four features Colin and I think are really key to spelling out the paradigm. Uh, another approach, I think it's arguably more common in philosophy, is when you start out with the idea that hypocrisy is intuitively really morally objectionable. Um, and then you home in on one particular variety of hypocrisy and you analyze that. So in this context, you might see some uh, philosophers defining hypocrisy as uh, blaming others for not living up to standards that you don't live up to yourselves, um, or placing expectations on others that you don't place on yourself. Uh, so I think those more focused sort of approaches can be useful. Uh, they do, for instance, seem to neatly cordon off hypocrisy uh, from phenomena like weakness of will and change of mind. Uh, but they do also, I think, rule out certain instances where something might be hypocrisy, but might not obviously involve blame or might just not be that morally objectionable at all. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So uh, is it bad to be a moral hypocrite? Yeah, good. So I think your answer is probably going to depend upon the sort of project you're engaged in. Um, if you've already isolated what you take to be an especially problematic form of hypocrisy as your explanatory focus, as we are trying to give an account of, uh, then presumably you'll say yes, right? So if you think hypocrisy is fundamentally about making an exception of yourself, I think it's not hard to see why it would then be bad to be a hypocrite, as you say. Uh, so just to take a concrete example, um, here in the UK, I'm sure you've heard uh, uh, the latest scandal in a series of episodes of you know, politicians allegedly not adhering to the COVID-19 restrictions yeah. say themselves yeah, opposed on others. Um, that involves a garden party or various parties really during the lockdown period. Uh, and people are understandably, I think, outraged by this because there does seem to be something morally bad or objectionable about holding others but not yourself to certain kinds of moral expectations. Um, something maybe to do with, you know, equal treatment or fairness, uh, a lot of philosophers would say. So if that's what you think hypocrisy is, then I think you'll say, yes, of course it's bad to be a hypocrite. Uh, but if you're more like Colin and I, and you take this more fluid or permissive approach where you want to capture many different kinds of hypocrisy uh, in your philosophical net, then I think you're more likely to say, no, not necessarily. Uh, hypocrisy is not always a bad thing. 
So in this way of thinking, I think you can definitely have hypocrites who are noble or have morally good motives. Uh, so one example Colin and I use in our paper is the father who hides his smoking habit from his son. And he tells his son off whenever the son, you know, has a casual cigarette with friends when he's out. And, you know, if the son ever finds out about the father's hidden smoking habit, he'd presumably say, you're such a hypocrite. Uh, and you might think he'd be right. But the hypocrisy doesn't seem like it's necessarily a bad thing here. Uh, now, you might want to respond by saying, surely the best thing would be for the father to just practice what he preaches, right? Or the best thing would be to quit smoking and to discourage it in his son. But, you know, given that he is a smoker, if you just hold that fixed, then you might think hypocrisy could be a morally defensible option in this case. I mean, you might think it's at least better than, you know, restoring consistency by continuing to smoke and saying to the son, you know, oh, do what you like, <laughs> smoke as much as you want. So I think there are cases where hypocrisy might not necessarily be as bad as we tend to think. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that hypocrisy, at least to some extent, is related to a person's moral authority. So what is, first of all, moral authority and is it undermined by, uh, in this case, moral hypocrisy? Yeah, good. So um, I did say that was one of the features um, that Colin and I think are, is present in paradigm cases and I think maybe you agree. So moral authority, this is a notion Colin and I come up with to develop our account of hypocrisy. Uh, and ours is, remember, a paradigm-based explanation. So our account of hypocrisy is in the first instance intended to speak to what we take to be exemplars of hypocrisy, uh, like the corrupt priest or the bacon-eating animal rights activist. Uh, but we think that the notion of authority, as we explained in the article, that's loose enough to account for more sort of humdrum or familiar cases as well. So moral authority, on our view, it refers to a certain kind of social status that someone enjoys within a particular moral community. So in the paradigmatic cases, a moral authority is going to be someone whose moral views others take really seriously, right? We turn to them for judgment, try not to do the things they say are morally bad. We want to become the people to whom they'd lend praise. Um, and people usually have the status Colin and I propose because they're thought to be especially good at leading a decent moral life. Uh, so it's worth noting here, I think, we don't take this to just be a kind of epistemic authority. It's not that the person's taken to be good at knowing what the moral facts are or what's right and wrong, though they usually will be. For Colin, moral authority is tied more closely to an action-guiding role that the person plays in influencing the moral thoughts and behaviour of others and the position they occupy relative to others. Uh, so we think there are three key features that you know, usually you find in a moral authority. Uh, one is that they play something almost like a law-giving role. They set the moral agenda. They play an important role in determining what others take the moral facts to be and setting others' expectations. So maybe they blame people for using certain kinds of derogatory language, and in doing so, they play a role in you know, our understanding of what counts as a slur and what doesn't. Uh, we also think authorities play a kind of adjudication role. They iron out difficult cases. Uh, you know, maybe it's not clear what a slur is. Maybe they kind of clarify where the boundaries lie. And moral authorities also seem to play a kind of punitive role. They meet out punishment and rewards. So insofar as you're a moral authority, you tend to paradigmatically meet out praise and blame. And when you do it, it tends to matter. Um, 
you know, all else being equal, it hits harder when others are blamed by you than if they were blamed by someone else who had less authority. Uh, and we think people usually get the status just through an active investment in moral issues, through moralizing, voicing their moral opinions, praising and blaming others. Uh, now, you might wonder why moralizing should earn you that special status, right? Um, and there are a couple of reasons Colin and I have for thinking this. Uh, one is that I think moralizing itself is a morally balanced action, right? It requires time and effort to sort of take a moral stand, especially publicly. Uh, it exposes you to criticism and resentment from others. You've kind of entered the social fray. Uh, and there are all sorts of risks, I think, that we take when we speak our moral minds. So I think we tend to admire people who have the courage to do so. And I think there's also another reason I think, you know, make, you know moralizing kind of sets you up as an authority of some kind is I think we take there to be a kind of link between practicing and preaching. I think all else being equal, you expect someone's moral pronouncements to at least give you some insight into what they're disposed to do. If there's a religious leader who's preaching modesty, I think you would assume they're more likely than a randomly chosen person at least to practice modesty. So that's how we think of moral authority. I think did you, you also asked how it's undermined or how we think it's undermined in cases of hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so um, might be useful to have a case study here, I think, um, just to show how we think this works. So um, consider that, that fictional animal rights advocate I keep picking on. Um, maybe they're quite public, maybe not, maybe they, they work for PETA, but they're forcefully campaigning against the meat industry, but when no one's looking, they're kind of indulging in bacon or hamburgers. Um, I think it's plausible that person is going to function as a kind of moral authority, especially in the community of animal rights uh, activists. So they might discourage, uh, you know, meat eating, encourage disapproval of the meat industry, clarify, you know, which products are cruelty free. Can you be a vegan and eat honey, for instance, those sorts of things. Now, clearly there's that mismatch I mentioned before, right, between the advocates pronouncements and their actions. Uh, to put it mildly, there looks like a bit of a tension between forcefully campaigning against that meat industry and then indulging in all that bacon. But I think once that mismatch is discovered, it's probably going to have important implications for their standing within the relevant community, right, for their moral authority. So remember, moral authorities are usually taken to be especially good at leading a decent moral life. And it's for that reason I think they're usually esteemed and turned to for guidance. Now, I think it's clear why esteem is going to be retracted here, right? People presumably aren't going to hold that animal rights activist in high moral regard anymore when they're discovering what they've been up to. But it's also the case, I think, that we're not, they're not going to be able to play quite the same role in condemning others as they did before. Uh, and that's not necessarily, it's worth emphasising this, it's not necessarily, I think, because what they did gives us a good reason to think what they've been saying is false, right? The reasons they've been pointing us to for being a vegan or a vegetarian might still be compelling reasons to do those things. Um, it's more, it seems, something about their right or their entitlement to condemn others that has been called into question. Uh, we might feel like they're not entitled to criticise others for moral faults that they're guilty of, right? Their standing to blame might have been undermined. Um, or alternatively, you might at least think the practical force of their message has been diluted, right? Their pronouncements are less likely to be taken seriously, um, or insofar as they are taken seriously, it's going to be almost entirely to do with the content of what they're saying and the plausibility of those arguments than the fact that it's them who's delivering it now. 
so basically that's what Colin and I think hypocrisy is fundamentally about. When through this mismatch between your words and your deeds, uh, a person's claim to moral authority gets undermined. Mm -hmm. Right. So another question now, when is an action morally worthy? Good. So um, I should probably begin by saying a little more about the notion of moral worth, maybe. Uh, yes. uh, so I think uh, a helpful case here might be to think of a friend who keeps the promise that she made to you. Maybe she promised you she'd help you move house and she keeps the promise, uh, but she only does it because she stands to benefit from doing so. Uh, so maybe you have a new housemate who is going to be a good work contact for her, you know, a good networking opportunity or something. Now, it looks like keeping her promise to you is all else equal the right thing to do. Uh, but you might think that something seems to be lacking, uh, morally lacking, right? And this person's promise keeping. Uh, even if your friend does what's right, uh, a lot of people would say her action seems to lack true moral worth. Uh, and what philosophers usually mean by that, uh, at least as I understand it, is that the action lacks a distinct kind of moral va value that actions can only have when they reflect morally well in us in a certain kind of way. Uh, most notably when we, when we merit praise or esteem for having acted well. So there's a distinction here then we've got, right, between the moral status of our actions, whether they're in fact right or wrong, uh, and on the other hand, what performing those actions says about us, what sorts of reactions we merit from other people when we do the right thing. Uh, of course, the question then becomes, what's needed exactly for our actions to reflect well in us. And one thing I think the example of that, you know, selfishly motivated uh, careerist friend of yours I, I use as an example, one thing I think that example sh uh, suggests is that it doesn't seem like enough for our actions to reflect well in us as moral agents, that we simply do the right thing, right? It seems like it's important that we do the right thing for the right sorts of reasons or owing to the right sorts of motives. And I'm just getting more and more questions going because the real question finally now um, is, you know, if only actions that are performed for the right sorts of motives have moral worth, then what exactly are the right sorts of motives? And I think there's two ways traditionally, there's a kind of divide in philosophy about how people answer that question. Uh, so one answer is to say, if your actions are going to have moral worth and the kind of motives that are driving you to do what's right, have to be what you might call an explicitly moral motive. Yeah, in particular, a motive or a desire to do the right thing. Um, if you're acting morally well, if you're doing the morally right thing, if that's going to reflect well on you, then you've got to do it precisely because it's the right thing to do. Uh, so this sometimes has, you know, its origins in Kant's idea that you have to act out of respect for the moral law. Uh, out of a kind of, you know, keen awareness and concern with your moral obligations. So in that view, my, you know, the friend keeping the promise is only going to, her action's only going to have moral worth if she does it because it's the right thing to do to keep that promise. Um, but there's another kind of answer you might think is also plausible, which is that the friend doesn't need to actually think to herself, this is the right thing to do. She just needs to be motivated, not by that consideration, but by the kinds of facts that explain why it's the right thing to do to help you move. So maybe it's because you're counting on her, maybe it's because you'll probably hurt your back if you don't have her health, right? So if, she, if those are the kinds of thoughts she's thinking, like Ricardo is counting on me, I can't let him down. I mean, maybe those would be enough 
for her actions to reflect well on her and for her doing the right thing to have moral worth. So a lot of people tend to go one way or the other there. Uh, I myself think there's rooms for both sorts of motives in an account uh, of moral worth. So I don't think you have to you know, choose a side here. I think you can have both. Uh, but those are the traditional ways of you know, answering that question, when's an action morally worthy? Mm -hmm. What if you do the right thing by accident? Is that a problem? Yeah, good. So this is a really uh, common sort of theme that crops up a lot in this literature. Uh, so I certainly think if you just do the right thing by accident, it's going to preclude moral worth. Uh, I think morally worthy actions can't be actions where the person does the right thing by accident. Uh, is it necessarily a problem if you do the right thing by accident? Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> so I think it's best to get clear on what we mean by accident, though, uh, mm -hmm. first of all. So I think there are different ways of spelling this out. Uh, so I guess one example would be if I trip on the sidewalk, uh, which I do do from time to time, uh, and my coin purse goes kind of flying in the air and the coins explode everywhere. And, you know, fortuitously, some of those, some of those coins, unbeknownst to me, fall into a beggar's lap. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a sense in which I've done the right thing by accident there, you might think, right? It's like the sense of accidental that contrasts with intentional. I didn't intend to give the beggar any money. Um, in fact, on some ways of, you know, thinking about things, I haven't really done anything at all. Perhaps we, we're really speaking loosely when we say I gave money away, right? Or I performed some action. That looks like it's kind of loose talk. But there's nothing morally bad about what happened, I take it. We might even be pleased by the outcome of my slip on the sidewalk. Uh, still, I think we wouldn't be inclined to praise me for it or to think that this, you know, unwitting donation reflected well on me in any meaningful way. You wouldn't credit me or hold me in higher moral esteem for it. So I think uh, let, let me just ask you yeah. one thing about that example, since you yeah, chose sure. it. I mean, could it be considered also acting uh, in a moral way or doing the right thing by accident if, for example, instead of just uh, the coins, uh, uh, the, the coins falling on the beggar's lap or something like that. I mean, me giving directly money to him, but uh, with the wrong intentions or the wrong motivation. So, for example, just to impress someone, would that also be considered doing the right thing by accident? Yeah, spot on. So I think that's, that's the sort of case that people are usually far more concerned about. Um, so that's exactly the case people usually have in mind when they say, well, I mean, I said to you the first kind of case where it's this, you know, not even an action, that seems like a fortuitous thing that happened. It's not necessarily, you might think, morally concerning or problematic in any sort of way. But the case you're pointing towards where you know, you do perform an action in the relevant sense. You, or you, it's no accident you give money to the beggar, but it is an accident uh, that you do what's right. Uh, I think those are the cases people take to be problematic and it's part of the reason why people are interested in moral worth, um, because they want to rule out those actions from being esteem-worthy or credit-worthy. Um, so those are the cases I think are more morally pressing. I think if we tweak the example such that you know, I've been walking with a colleague uh, whom, as you, you know, suppose I wanted to impress and I, you know, made the donation, you know, out of this desire to impress my new colleague. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. In that case, it looks like an accident that I do the right thing, even though I'm intentionally giving money in this case. It's not some fortuitous trip with the coins going everywhere. 
Um, I think you can get at that thought that in this case, it's an accident that I do what's right. Um, I think you can get at that thought by saying, well, look, since, you know, the, the ultimate motive in this case, the true guiding motive is to impress the colleague, it looks like if not donating would have impressed the colleague, then not donating is what you would have done instead, right? Uh, maybe you're so concerned about impressing this colleague, you would have kicked people if that's what would have impressed them. Uh, so here I think the relevant sense of accidental uh, doesn't seem to be picking up on the action being unintentional anyway, you intentionally give the money, perhaps even in full knowledge it's the right thing to do. But it seems fortuitous or lucky still in some way, given this impress the colleague motive, that you just so happen to do the right thing. So I think those are the kinds of cases people would want to say we should rule out from having moral worth, because they seem to lack a kind of moral worth, precisely because there's a kind of absence of an explanatory connection, perhaps, between the rightness of the action and what your motives were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that we could take this even further and ask, okay, so what if, for example, someone gives money to a beggar just because they heard people saying that it's the right thing to do, but they are emotionally detached from it. It's just that they do it just because, I mean, they have the idea that it's the right thing to do, for example. Yes, I think this points to something really important that gets neglected in the literature sometimes, uh, which is you know, there's a huge focus on motives, like you've got to want to do the right thing. Uh, usually people will say it has to be a kind of, um, it can't just be an instrumental motive. You can't just want to do the right thing in order to impress someone. But one thing I think the example uh, you just gave points towards, it points towards a few things, of course, but um, I think it points towards the fact that, you know, beliefs are what gives rise to our actions as well as, as desires in general. And so we shouldn't neglect those either. If someone's, you know, doing the right thing just because they heard someone else say it was the right thing to do, and they have no real insight into why it's right or why it's good, or there's no kind of compassion guiding them. They're just like, oh, this is apparently the right thing to do. Um, that person looks more like a kind of moral automaton <laughs> uh, than you know a moral agent that deserves our esteem. So I think we'll usually want to build in some cognitive condition as well. Maybe the person has to be justified in believing it's the right thing to do or justified in believing it matters in some broader way that they make this choice. See, otherwise, we just have people, you know, blindly following moral rules without any insight to why they're there or why they should matter. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, is it problematic to have a bad person as a friend? Yeah, um, I'm still really interested in this question. Um, I've given an answer to it before that I think is on the right track, uh, but I, I should sort of back up a bit. So I think in general, um, I think there are a few obvious problems we can point to with having a bad person as a friend. Um, one problem might have to do with a kind of personal risk you're taking on. There's this worry people have that, you know, if you lie down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. If, if you're, con you know, consult consorting with someone who generally treats people badly or is prejudiced, Maybe they'll turn on you tomorrow. So you're taking on. Some yeah, sort of I mean, one very common idea that people have is that, uh, I mean, if you hang out with bad people, you will get sort of contaminated by them or something like that. Yep, that's another one. So that's a kind of moral risk rather than a personal risk. That's the kind of, um, I guess there's two ways of putting it. Uh, one way is, as you say, it kind of rubs off on you. Maybe you get corrupted. Maybe you get desensitized to certain kinds of wrongdoing. 
Oh, or maybe you just get roped into doing things you otherwise wouldn't. Maybe they get themselves into a pickle because they're doing something dodgy and they call you in. Yeah. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, Kennett and Cocking, um, their co-authors who published a bit of work on friendship, and they, there's a theme in their work about friendship and moral danger, uh, about how it runs these risks. Uh, though I agree with them that you can still have good and true friendships that involve uh, that kind of risk being materialised. So yeah, I think all those... Um, some like clear worries we might have uh but I, I think we shouldn't always overstate them um i think one thing we should keep in mind is those concerns won't always uh materialize uh, uh words materialize um so as far as that personal risk i pointed to is concerned i mean i think we just you know we're not short on examples of people who are capable of some impressive moral compartmentalization, you know, where you're kind of a loving father or, or a great friend to those in your close circle, but you're so prejudiced that you kind of can successfully, you know, reserve your sort of moral hatred for this group of people. I think there's plenty of examples of people who are like that and manage to kind of hold these separate spheres of moral treatment uh, quite successfully. Um, and even though I think the kind of immorality rubbing off a new worry is a risk, I mean, I think it's not always going to materialise either, right? You might say that um, the person could have lots of good people as friends who kind of counteracts any influence the bad person is having on them. Uh, but I guess in the context of this question, I mean, one temptation is to look for like the answer, right? There's got to be like a clear sort of silver bullet that explains why it's it seems, you know, intuitively something slightly morally questionable about having a bad person as a friend. Um, but I just tend to think that there's a kind of explanatory pie here and all these different things play a different role. So I think all the factors we've pointed towards are part of that explanation pie, so to speak. Um, but the reason I don't think they're all of it is because in these cases I'm giving you where we suppose the risk doesn't materialise, right? They, the person never gets treated badly by this bad person they've befriended, they never turn on them, uh, and, they, and they never rub off on them either. I think even when you hold that fixed, there's still some moral residue left over. I think, you know, even if we stipulated that, you know, these risks don't come to the fore, there still seems to be kind of moral unease, I think we'd feel when we see someone, someone who's, you know, fairly morally ordinary, who's friends with someone, close friends with someone who's racist or misogynist. Um, so even if the friend doesn't treat them badly, even if they don't get caught up in any morally questionable activities, I still think we seem, I mean, I'm just reporting on myself here, I don't know if you share this, there's still the sense like something's, something's morally amiss there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's a missing part of the explanatory pie we need to kind of fill in besides all these appeals to risk. Um, and the explanation I'm inclined to give here um, is that even if we feel like, uh, you know, if we have good reasons for thinking that maintaining a friendship with a bad person can be problematic in certain ways, I think it's really choosing the bad person as a friend that's perhaps the most problematic aspect of the situation. Um, and I think that's because of what it says as a, about a person's moral priorities. And I think this is what we're picking up on when we feel that moral unease. This is kind of like, why did you even go along with this in the first place? Um, and that's because I think, you know, we expect people with the right sorts of moral priorities to take certain qualities of character, like someone's being seriously racist, for example, as, you know, something like a bar to friendship, uh, all else being equal. So I think if you allow yourself to forge a friendship with someone 
who has these serious moral flaws. Uh, it seems like you're being morally complacent in certain respects. Um, and one reason I think this has to be an important part of the explanation uh, is that an explanation that only appeals to the kind of moral and personal risks involved. Um, it's not clear to me those concerns are that different to the, from the concerns we tolerate in friendship more generally. I think friendships always carry a risk we'll get hurt, that we'll be called upon to do things we don't feel entirely comfortable doing, uh, that our characters may change for the worse. Um, it's true that being friends with someone who's, you know, misogynist or morally, you know, defe uh, defective in some way might carry more risk. But I think since we already seem to extend a fair bit of leeway to people, moral leeway when it comes to their friends, uh, we're taking certain risks for them. I think it's harder to hold them to account for those sorts of things once the relationship's already been forged. Um, and that's part of the reason why I think the initial choosing seems, uh, you know, more like a fitting object of criticism in a lot of these cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been thinking about this for a bit, and I guess that there are also some examples where things get a little bit more tricky. So, for example, uh, I guess this is also this also has to do with morality. Politically, I fall more on the left, but I also have friends on the right. So, I mean, I could very easily think about them as bad people because they don't worry about certain social, political, economic issues that I worry about. But, I mean, it's very hard for me in that specific case to say that they are bad People. I mean, it's just that they have different uh, political, moral values. I mean, but, but again, it, it, it's tricky because I, I could think that, but I mean, uh, yeah, but, but on the other hand, I think that, <laughs> that they are not bad people just because they have uh, a morality that it, that's different from mine. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, good. So I think... I think it's really tricky when we ask this question to sort of tie down what a bad person is. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I didn't have in mind, I mean, when I was thinking about it, and we can obviously think of lots of different cases. I mean, the kind of case I had in mind was one where the person's like not at the extreme end. They're not like a member of the Ku Klux Klan, um, but they're not just someone who has like implicit biases, uh, for instance. Like that seems too weak. Uh, because I think when all of us are probably bad people, or at least a lot of us are. Um, so I guess what I was thinking is that someone who's quite explicit about these, you know, defective moral commitments, and where it plays a really important role in their life and how they navigate their way, way around the world, like who they choose to hire for a job, um, maybe which political party they'd vote for. Um, I don't want to say your friends are bad people. Um, I don't know if you think they're guilty of vices like cruelty or anything that extreme. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I think I think it's hard for us to draw the lines. I think there is this, I, I don't know, just people I hang out with. Uh, there is, like, you know, I, I see, uh, not with them, but in the discussions I, you know, see them taking part in, there is this tendency to kind of, you know, label people as bad when they, they disagree with us quite mm -hmm. strongly. But you, you might think that's a bit quick, um, I think. So I think we should, we should be careful who we call bad people. Um, and I think it's also... Maybe it's also easier, I think. I would, I would hazard a guess that when you have like childhood friends uh, that you grow up with and they develop quite different views from you, you kind of go your separate moral ways. I think it's easier there to maintain that friendship uh, than it would be perhaps to start up a new friendship with someone who has 
the same kind of moral political commitments as them, but you know, it was entirely a, a new face to you and a new entity. So I think we do, I mean, this is why I was talking about the initial choosing being deserving of criticism, right? Because I think that, you know, uh, in the case where you forged a friendship with someone, it seems like you have these commitments not to just abandon them when they, you know, morally differ from you in some degree at a later point in time. Oh, oh that's my sense anyway. I don't know if you have a similar thought. Well, I mean, I don't even know what to think about it. I'm still trying to arrive at conclusions about it. I, I don't have any for now. So uh, anyway, changing topics, what are evolutionary debunking arguments and what do you think about them? Okay, good. Um, so uh, these, I guess these debunking arguments, you might think of them as having two key ingredients. Um, usually the first is a claim about genealogy or like, you know, the genealogy, so to speak, of a belief or usually a kind of cluster of related beliefs. Um, and the second ingredient is a philosophical one. So usually it's some theory or thesis about the conditions under which your beliefs are justified or under which they count as knowledge, for example. And what those putting forward debunking arguments more generally, I'm just starting with the debunking before I get to the evolutionary, um, what those these people who perform these arguments try to do is they try and argue that the genealogy of some belief or cluster of related beliefs cast doubt upon the idea that those beliefs meet the conditions they'd have to meet to be justified or count as knowledge. So um, uh, an artificial analogy here, I guess, um, I don't know why I always return to examples like this, but um, take a belief you have now, uh, like the belief that my nails are pink. Um, now, here's why I could, here's like one way I could like debunk that belief, right? Um, first, I could put forward a claim about genealogy. So let's suppose, uh, for argument's sake, I tell you, uh, and suppose this is true, that I organized for someone to slip a Jess's nails a pink belief pill in your morning coffee today. Uh, and what this otherwise utterly useless pill does uh, is it makes your eyes see pink on my nails, whether or not there's any pink actually there. So that's the kind of genealogy I'm telling. This is how you've come to form this belief that my nails are pink that you have now. Um, and next I'm going to put forward a philosophical claim. Uh, so maybe I tell you this, maybe I tell you on my account of, you know, knowledge, belief, justification, uh, a belief can't be justified if it's formed by a process that's insensitive to the truth. Um, that's, that's one kind of view you might have. And then I'll point out to you that, hey, that process by which you form this belief that my nails are pink, uh, that is a process that's insensitive to the truth, right? Because given that the pill is what's you know, part of the process here, you would believe that my nails are pink, whether or not they were pink, right? There's no sensitivity you have to different sort of nail colors there. So that would be like how a debunking argument would work. Uh, and an evolutionary debunking argument is going to apply that same logic. Um, the main twist, though, is going to be that it's going to replace um, the genealogy, there could be any genealogy, with an evolutionary kind of genealogy. So it's going to be a scientific or empirical claim. Mm -hmm. uh, and the version of these arguments I've been most interested in are ones that target uh, not just you know your belief that my nails are pink, but that target our moral beliefs, right? our beliefs about which sorts of things are right and wrong. Uh, so usually what these evolutionary debunkers of morality will do is they'll start with an empirical claim, which is basically a kind of scientific hypothesis. It's a story about how we came to have the moral beliefs that we do. 
uh, or if we're being more careful how we came to have the moral belief forming mechanisms that we do, how our psych psychology came to be such that uh, we form moral beliefs about certain things rather than others being right or wrong. And then they'll, you know, plug in a philosophical ingredient too. So again, that's usually going to be some story or thesis about the conditions on which, uh, under which your beliefs are justified or count as knowledge. And what they're going to do, these people now, they're going to basically say that that scientific story they've given you about how you came to have the moral beliefs that you do, that scientific story casts doubt upon your moral beliefs, meaning the conditions that have to meet to be justified. Uh, uh, I think it's worth noting here, though, that um, the conclusion of these arguments uh, isn't that our beliefs, you know, that killing people is typically wrong, or our beliefs that helping people is usually good. It's not that those beliefs are false, right? It's perfectly consistent, actually, with these evolutionary debunking arguments that many of these beliefs could be true. Um, but the upshot of them, and I think it's, it's still a disturbing upshot, you might think, is that we wouldn't be justified in believing they're true. We can't know that mm -hmm. they're true. So if it's a, you know, the Jess's nails are pink case, um, my conclusion wasn't, you know, my nails aren't pink. The, the conclusion was, you don't know, <laughs> or you're not justified in continuing to believe they are after I've given you this debunking story. Um, so what should you do? Uh, well, not necessarily believe your beliefs here are false. Maybe you should suspend judgment right, hold off on forming an opinion. Uh, maybe you should look for other kinds of evidence. Maybe you, you know, go to your friend who hasn't been slipped that belief pill in their morning coffee and, and you say to them, what color is his nails? Um, so those are how these arguments tend to work. Um, in terms of what I think of them, uh, so I think that, that there are two ways to usually resist these arguments and you can see what those ways are gonna be from the two kind of steps I gave you. So one way, and I think it's arguably the more common way, is to challenge the particular view being put forward about the conditions under which your beliefs are justified or qualify as knowledge. So I think the example I used with you was, um, you know, if your beliefs are insensitive to the truth, they can't qualify as knowledge. But you might think that's, you know, you might have various reasons if you're an epistemologist to think, oh, it's just not a gem in general a good view of knowledge or justification, maybe. Uh, but another way to challenge these arguments, uh, which I think is slightly less common, uh, but it's a tactic I tried before, uh, is to challenge the genealogy being put forward. So I think evolutionary debunking arguments in the moral domain, they usually rely upon the claim that our moral belief forming uh, mechanisms are the product of natural selection. Uh, and by that, it's usually meant that we have the moral beliefs that we do or that we're somehow primed or disposed to form particular moral beliefs rather than others because it was you know, advantageous for our ancestors in terms of fitness to believe things like it's good to help people because, you know, that got them all sorts of reputational benefits and attracted mates, uh, you know, nice guys finished first maybe, made them more likely to survive. Um, so, I mean, you might doubt whether that's the correct story. You might think things could have gone somewhat differently. You might think it's, it's hard to know either way. Um, so I think there's a lot of room to sort of press on debunking arguments from that empirical angle um, and not just from the, uh, the sort of epistemic angle as well. Mm -hmm. But since we're talking about beliefs here, are beliefs about morality true beliefs and what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so uh, I think this is sort of going, so I, I guess we, we said with the evolutionary debunking arguments that you know, the conclusion of those arguments or the intended conclusion at least isn't that the beliefs are false, 
uh, necessarily. It's and you're not justified in believing them, or you you don't know these things. Um, but you might think that uh, you know we could have an argument to the effect our beliefs about morality are systematically false, um, and that's where moral error theory comes in. So um, I actually started my philosophical journey looking at these evolutionary debunking arguments and saying, oh no, you know we we can't know that things are right and wrong. That's that's not great. And then I came across this moral error theory and I kind of went to myself, oh, this is way worse. This is like, according to this, these sorts of arguments, there's not even moral truths to be known. Um, we can't even have true moral beliefs. Um, so this is like way worse, um, I thought. Well, I mean, more frightening, you might think at least. Uh, so this view moral error theory basically says that, you know, beliefs about morality can't really be true beliefs because there are no moral facts. Um, and I, I guess I was fairly sympathetic to this view a while back. Um, I'm still a little sympathetic to it now, but I'd be hesitant to call myself an error theorist because um, I just think it's, it, it's not clear. I haven't made up my mind about it. Um, so maybe I should, I should probably say more about what this, this view is, how you kind of get to this startling conclusion that nothing's really right or wrong. Not just that there are facts out there about right and wrong we can't know about, perhaps, but like there's just no facts to be known in the first place. Um, so I think... Uh, maybe you've come across the term error theory before. I think a lot of us are error theorists about things like uh, wishes or dragons, right? If you see people from the past talking about those things, uh, you might say to yourself, well, in order for there to be witches, there'd have to be people with magical powers, and there aren't any of those around. Uh, or in order for there to be dragons, there'd have to be these gigantic flying lizards who breathe fire, and, and thankfully there aren't any of those around. Uh, so if you're an error theorist about a certain kind of entity, like witches or dragons, you'll usually take the discourse surrounding that entity uh, to be descriptive, to be saying something about what our world is like or to be positing the existence of certain things. Um, but you'll, you'll also take that, those claims to be false in a fairly systematic way because you think the conditions under which uh, those things would exist are conditions that you know, don't hold in our world. Perhaps they're conditions that just couldn't possibly hold in our world. So I think uh, error theories about witches and dragons are pretty familiar. Um, but in philosophy, you get error theories targeted at things, you know, targeted at things that you really might have thought did exist. Um, you know, like beliefs about people, colors, numbers. Like some philosophers have denied those things exist in some sense. Um, and even, you know, if we're going to, to moral error theory now, uh, moral facts. Some philosophers deny there are any facts about right and wrong. Uh, Right, so they think there are no facts, not just about right and wrong, but you know, by implication, what you morally ought to do. Morality is just bunk. If you think there's rightness and wrongness out there, you're mistaken. So I think if you have that view, and I've said like I've, I've kind of danced with it before and been attracted to it, but if you have that view, then I think, yeah, you're just going to say beliefs about morality aren't true beliefs. They can't be. I mean, maybe you can have like trivial beliefs about morality that are right or something, but the ones that count, you know, I think are not going to be true. Mm -hmm. So does that connect in any way to moral nihilism? Yeah, so um, I guess I, I, I guess people use these terms differently. Um, I use the term moral nihilism often interchangeably with moral error theory. Yeah. Um, and yes, in a recent co-authored paper I have um, with my colleague Edward Elliott, uh, we use this term moral nihilism. Uh, and we actually try and make the case that if someone had the option to learn about whether it's true, they, they shouldn't take it. Um, 
which might sound like an odd thing for a philosopher to say. I, I guess in the paper, we're actually talking about uh, a kind of ordinary person with typical human preferences. Um, and we think, I mean, understandably, we think philosophers are highly atypical uh, in various respects. I mean, you've probably seen from this conversation, the things I spend my days uh, thinking and writing about probably makes me a little uh, odd, <laughs> if nothing else does. Um, so, yeah, I guess I should probably say why Ed and I think that you shouldn't take this option to learn more about whether error theory or moral nihilism is, is true, because it seems like, you know, I spent a good deal of my life wondering whether it's true. Why do I think an ordinary, less strange non-philosopher probably shouldn't follow me? Um, so I think to get warmed up for this, uh, it's probably useful just to start out by recognising there are cases, I think, where you come to believe certain things about the world, or maybe you just grow more confident in certain things being the case. And that in itself, right, changes the value you can get out of certain actions or out of life more generally without changing the nature of the world around you at all. Um, so one example that Ed and I use of this is twist endings in movies. Uh, so I think that, I mean, I don't know, do you like twist endings? I like twist endings. Um, yeah, I do. <laughs> Yeah, so I think um, your enjoyment of a movie, um, the kind of value you get out of watching it, that depends upon you having certain beliefs, right? I mean, have you seen The Sixth Sense? Mm, yes. Yes? Okay, so spoiler alert for anyone watching, but, you know, Bruce Willis is dead, right? And that's like a huge twist at the end. But I think you wouldn't have enjoyed the movie as much if you could have seen it coming because someone had said to you, Bruce Willis is dead. Look at how, like, no one's talking back to him except for... Um, with Haley Joel Osment, I think, is the actor, except for the boy, right? He's the only one who talks to Bruce Willis. And so if you can see it coming the whole time. You don't enjoy the film as much, right? But you're watching the same film. You have the option to watch it or not to watch it. Everything's the same. All that's changed is your belief about what's going to happen. But mm -hmm. that changes the value you can extract out of that film because you have a certain belief. Bruce Willis is dead um, in the fiction. Uh, because you have that belief, you can't enjoy it as much. Um, and... This is going to sound like a weird analogy, but Ed and I think a really similar thing holds true about your beliefs about moral nihilism or moral error theory. And that's because we think a lot of ordinary people, again, I'm not talking about philosophers. We say more in the paper about why philosophers are, are weird. But um, we, we think that for ordinary people, the payoff you get from doing the morally right thing is often tied to believing you did, in fact, do the morally right thing. So... Um, I think, you know, when I help you, if I help you move house, I keep using this moving house example. Um, I've moved my house a lot in my life. Maybe that's why I keep using it. Um, so I think that, you know, if I help you move house, and, I, you know, I think obviously I'm not just going to do that because I want to um, get a warm, fuzzy feeling from doing what I know is the right thing to do. I'll do it because I care about you if I'm a good friend and so on. And I want to help. But nonetheless, I think I do get this extra kind of, no matter what sides it is, I think I do get this kind of extra uptick from being like, yeah, I'm a good person. Yeah, it's the right thing to do. And I think for a lot of people, that's not trivial, especially over the course of a lifetime. I think our moral identity is a really important part of us. We get extra value out of life from thinking we live in a world that's a moral world, right? From doing good things, becoming morally better people. Uh, so, um, I think what Ed and I want to say is notice that if moral nihilism or error theory is true and you believe it's true, you can't ever believe now, or at least you kind of irrationally believe that you've done the morally right thing at all, that you're becoming a morally good person at all. And so the reason Ed and I 
you know, in short, it's like a long paper, but in short, long story short, I think the reason we suggest you shouldn't learn about the truth of moral nihilism if you're off of the charts is that assuming you began as most people do by believing that some things are indeed right and wrong, you're taking a risk that just isn't worth it. So I think of the movie case, right? If I said to you, do you want me to tell you if this movie has a twist and what it is? Either I'm going to say there's no twist if, if there's not, in which case you're kind of back where you started, or I'll say there is and I'll tell it to you and then it's ruined, right? And similarly in the nihilism case, we think either your finite nihilism is false, in which case you're kind of back where you started, so what? But another potential outcome is you find out moral nihilism is true, in which case you're just like that, you know, the person who's had the sixth sense ruined for them. You can still make the same choices, but you'll get far less value or payoff out of them. So that's um, that's our strange kind of argument to the effect that moral nihilism or moral error theory is something maybe an ordinary person would have good reason not to inquire too deeply into. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, uh, Dr. Isro, before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Oh, good idea. So, um, I have a website, which is uh, just www.jessicaisro.com. So, that's J-E-S-S-I-C-A. And then my surname is slightly unintuitive spelling, I-S-S-E-R-O-W. Um, and there I have like links to my various pages and my and my research. So where I, where I talk about all, the, all these strange things in print. Um, so those can be found there. Okay, great. I will be leaving links to that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk oh, to you. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun too. Hi guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there, starting at $1. If you could, it would be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. You can also support me on PayPal. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perugo Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein. Then Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Mark Blythe, Robert Winguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullet. Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan, Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nalek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Simon Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, 
Scott, Jackery Fish and Tim Duffy. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardas France, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Bogdan Candivates. Thank you for all.